can just be about finding those one or two relationships with people who mm-hmm. really get you and get your experience. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Hello, and welcome to Disability Done Different. A podcast by DSE where we have candid conversations about all things disability and NDIS. I'm Evie Norfell. And I'm Roland Norfell. And Dad, Disability Done Different isn't the only podcast that you've been working on lately, is it? No, the latest series we've been working on is called Subdate, as in what's up in the NDIS. First two episodes, which have been um, proved very popular, which we're really pleased about, we're explaining the support and the bricks and mortar side of home and living housing within the NDIS. And the next one about to pop out of the can is Rob Woolley on groups. And group programs have been particularly changeable and difficult and whatever the word is for changing a lot. And Rob explains where they are now, where they've been and where they're most likely going. It's a really practical, good example of um, explaining what's going on in the NDIS groups, Rob Woolley. I love that image of a podcast popping out of the can like Pringles. And much like Pringles, with DSE's podcasts, once you pop, you can't stop. <laughs> so, you know, if you want to make sure you're always getting the good good, make sure you pod- you subscribe at uh, your podcast apps or at teamdsc.com.au slash podcast. But today we've got a great interview with the wonderful Emily Dash. I'm really proud of this interview. We recorded this interview late last year with Emily, who's a writer, actor, producer and speaker. She works across theatre and screen and her acclaimed work emphasises social justice issues, community engagement, intersectionality and expanding perceptions of disability. And if this stuff doesn't touch you, there's something wrong with you. (laughs) And with that, let's introduce Emily. It's great to have you in the studio, Emily. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Emily, you first came to my attention when I saw you on a YouTube video doing a spoken piece about I'm not my body. And and to be honest, it really blew me away. It was a very, very powerful piece. Can you can you talk a little bit about what you were you were saying in that piece? So that piece is a piece called I'm Not a Work of Art, which was actually the very first piece of work that I made as an artist. And it came out of wanting to make a work that was about discrimination, but it's not about any particular type or form of discrimination. It's more about how it feels to be made into an object of discrimination. And as your first piece of work, are you still proud of it or is it something you've moved on from? I'm. It's always going to be something that I'm very proud of. And I think that it, it unfortunately is still as resonant today as it was in 2014. So I think in that sense, it's, you know, can still be useful for both myself but also people that can hear it and watch it. You may have done it in 2014, but I only saw it, I I think, last year and it was incredibly relevant to me last year. Thank you so much for that. I'm happy to hear it. So you're nearly a decade into your artistic practice, Emily. I wanted to ask you about your experience of the art industry generally as a disabled artist. What's it been like for you? 
I've been very lucky in terms of the relationships and connections I've been able to have. I I think I wouldn't be where I am today without some of the mentoring that I've had. But it is still quite a struggle. There's still quite a lot of barriers for artists with disability to be taken seriously, not least of which is some of the negative and inaccurate portrayals that we do see on stage and screen and this idea of, you know, cripping up, which is able-bodied actors playing disabled characters. You know, some of those barriers are very slowly starting to be broken down, but we still have a long way to go as an industry until we are fully inclusive. Uh, this is maybe a, a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a dorky question. No, it doesn't matter. I just don't. This, I want to ask you it? how has NDIS impacted your career, but is that like a really shit NDIS consultant question? <laughs> it is an interesting question. I, I think that uh, you know, with the NDIS, I've been able to get the support that I need to be able to go out in the community and take all these opportunities. Um, that have come across my desk without the support of the NDIS, I wouldn't be able to do that. So it really does sort of safeguard my participation in the community. But I know that for a lot of people, it's very difficult to use the NDIS to access arts programs and services and things like that i'm grateful to be in a position as a freelance artist where i am employed and able to support myself at any given moment Speaking of representation, Emily, at our WTFH Where To From Here conference this year, you performed a really powerful spoken word piece that was in pretty large part about taking up space. Why is that such an important topic for you? Why is it really close to your heart? Taking up space has always been a really important topic for me, particularly in recent years when you hear kind of all sorts of stories about people with disability being vulnerable to horrible situations like abuse and neglect and things like that. And I think it's very important in every context, but particularly in a safety context, that people with disabilities are visible and do take up space in the community so that we can't be ignored, so that we are value for the contributions that we make to our community because you know we are able to give a lot and I'm getting you know that piece came out of a lot of things but out of a frustration with the idea that people with disability are just supposed to be grateful for what we get because we don't really give anything back it's just painfully false and dangerous and and we'll include a link to that piece as well as i am not a work of art in the show notes if anyone's curious to see those that's a really powerful piece it was very well received there's something i wanted to pick up on in, in what you were just saying emily about vulnerability 
And, and vulnerability is almost um, trendy with Brene Brown and a bunch of people talking about how we have to make ourselves, expose ourselves more, show our vulnerability. But one of the things I'm learning, and it's only more recently, is that you work so hard, um, people with a disability can work so hard to not be vulnerable because you have vulnerability. You're At times there's um, you need to shut down on that vulnerability. Do you find yourself amazed that people want to be more vulnerable? Am I on a completely wrong track here? Is it a bit weird? No, I think it's an interesting question. I am a big fan of people like Brené Brown. Um, I think there is a difference between being, you know, emotionally vulnerable and being open to connection and being vulnerable to a situation that is not going to be good or healthy for you. So the way that I like to think about it is that I want to keep my boundaries strong and my heart soft. So I do want to still be open to that vulnerable human connection with people and authentic connection with people, but I want to make sure that those are the right people for me who are not going to take advantage of me either physically or otherwise. I can tell you're a Brene Brown fan there, nearly directly quoting the, what is it, um, tough back, soft front, wild heart. <laughs> That's exactly right, yeah. Yeah, so it is that, that kind of concept. I'll dig a bit further if I can, um, Emily, in a sense of it can't be easy to switch on and switch off vulnerability. It can't be easy to be coming against the sort of discrimination that your artworks so often talks about and then be emotionally open at the end of the day, you know, even before the end of the day. It, that, that's not an easy switch. No, it's absolutely not an easy switch, but it's one that, you know, I feel like for me as a person... One of the things I constantly strive for is a sense of balance. And I think that's just part of that. So I'm constantly looking at what relationships are healthy and value me. And you're right in the, you know, constantly coming up against those barriers. Having a disability is is not an easy thing to do and this is going to be a pretty controversial thing to say I think but um that's why I think that the concept you know having a disability is itself inherently traumatic constantly coming up against and having to ask for the basic things that people, you know, want and need every day is a trauma that people with disability have to face. And that, again, comes back to my um, idea of taking up space in terms of dealing with the way that you exist in the world to be inherently traumatic. So that 
part of what I'm hearing, and, and please keep correcting me if I'm getting it wrong, but is that that emotional expression is finding itself through your art. So one of the outlets for the vulnerability, for the um, trauma is through your art. Yet I also find in your art, there's a you're treading a line between um, expression and fuck you. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, I have a very complicated relationship with disability pride. I think that um, for some people, it can be a really helpful concept. But for others, I think um, it can be a bit problematic because, like, what is there to be proud of when you have to sort of rely on other people for your personal care and things like that? Like, that's a very difficult and personal thing to be proud of. Um, but I find that going back to the importance of connection, if you just find, say, one person who is willing to listen and build a deep relationship with you and respond to you, whether that be through art or something else, is, is a beautiful thing. Hmm. And do you find more of a home in the artistic community or the disability community or just a dumb question? I mean, no, it's not a dumb question at all. I, um, I, it depends. You go to, you straddle different communities for different things. I think the art community is still sort of uh, wrestling with being more open to diversity. But I think often I don't fit that well into the disability community either. So as I said, it's not always about being just super involved in your community. It can just be about finding those one or two relationships with people who mm -hmm. really, really get you and get your experience. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think that conversation about disability pride is absolutely fascinating. And it's one that you and I have had together quite a bit, actually, because we've been collaborating on an e-learning module about supporting uh, participants from the LGBTIQA plus community. Uh, and pride is obviously a really important topic for queer people. And uh, so I guess I wanted to talk a little bit more about that module with you. And I've, I've got our people working very hard to make sure that it'll be available at the same time as this podcast comes out. So that's a little plug for our course. So we've been collaborating, you and I, specifically on a series of videos of LGBTIQA plus people with disability. I wanted to ask you, because I, I know there was like quite a bit that I learned through the process, but I wanted to know if there was anything in that that surprised you. Specifically in terms of that module on pride, I thought it was really interesting the way people made a distinction between their queer pride and their disability pride and how sometimes those things intertwine and sometimes they're completely separate and you might be at one point in your journey with one of those concepts and at another point with 
the other one. So I thought that was a really interesting thing to sort of tease. Mm. tease. Yeah, that was a complex conversation. Yeah. And another thing that was interesting about that conversation is in the context of an e-learning module for support workers, what should support workers know about Pride? Because I think we originally had a line in there, something like support workers should encourage people to have Pride in their LGBTIQA plus identity. And the feedback was, that's none of a support worker's business. Like they should not be encouraging yeah. me to do anything with my Pride. They should just be following my lead. And so I thought that was quite an interesting little bit of Yeah, absolutely. Well. Yeah. Absolutely, and I think it's part of a larger conversation about what the role of a support worker is and that's different for everybody. But I think at the end of the day, you know, we keep coming back to this idea of choice and control, which seems like a pretty simple concept at the outset, but when you actually are applying that on a day-to-day basis and you have to balance it with other things that might be like duty of care or like, you know, responsibility to your organisation and policies and things like that. It's not always a black and white thing to be able to apply. So I think it's a conversation that the disability community and its allies need to keep having about how to provide that effective support that always puts choice and control at the centre. It's fascinating what you're saying, Emily, because the more I think about the way people resisted that idea of support workers should encourage pride and how some some people found that a bit of an invasive idea. When you think about like a lot of marketing around disability support organizations, it is a very affirming, but very assertive, you know, kind of like you should have pride way of, of speaking. And it's interesting to reflect on if you're working in the disability sector, how you can I think what our workshop participants described was how can you create an environment where people can feel free to express their pride and show that you're a safe person to to be proud around and 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 to be welcoming but without necessarily coercing or influencing somebody to express a level of pride that they themselves don't feel yeah yeah maybe I've taken it too far but I think that's kind of interesting no I I completely understand and yeah these are the kinds of conversations that the sector needs to keep having um, because there is no easy answer and it is a very individual sort of relationship that people have and it's about how you manage that. But it's always keeping the person at the centre. Listening to you both talk about um, putting people at the centre of everything Reminds me of some work I did in aged care. It was twenty years ago, with it was it was specifically focused at lesbian and gay people. And I remember talking to this awesome agency. I don't remember who they were, but they were um, specifically working in in that area. And they said a couple of things that really still um, resonate around in my brain. And one is that older people, um, particularly when they were quite old, were often referred to as that they used to be gay. That because they got older, they'd lost their sexuality and were no longer gay. Mm. But the other thing I, I really remember was them saying, what we really want workers to be is present, just really present. Is, is Can you comment on either of those things? Is that what you're talking about, about putting people at the centre? And 
Do you get similar sorts of things with sexuality? Yes, I mean, uh, absolutely. I think um, part of the reason that I have started looking at queer sexuality and disability in quite a lot of my work is that people with disability are often considered to be asexual, not to have any sexuality whatsoever, which is kind of similar to what you're saying about older people being sort of stripped of their sexuality as they get older. So I think fighting for our sexuality is a really important um, part of what the disability community is doing, and I sort of do my part to to help with that. Um, and the other thing that you were saying um, around presence, I think it's, you know, a good basis for any sort of relationship with any person is to be present and connected and in the moment with them as much as possible. Um, and so I think bringing that sort of attitude to to support work is a good place to start. Uh, the other thing that I would say is that if people with disabilities um, are considered sexual at all, they're often automatically considered to be heterosexual mm -hmm. and that's just not the case, um, which is another reason why I want to keep exploring queerness and disability in my work. Yeah, that's definitely something that we heard a lot from our the people who were in our course as well, just this like reflexive, oh, so do you have a missus or do you have a boyfriend? And yeah. I don't mind when I get asked those questions because I'm <laughs> confident enough to correct people. But, you know, if somebody's just starting to explore something, that those kinds of questions can sometimes be received as like an implicit suggestion of what the answer should be. And so, yeah, I thought that was quite interesting how often that came up in our group yeah. as well. Emily, one of the themes of what you've been talking about to me seems to be about relationships and forming, you know, just finding one person or two people. There's, follow me with this. Um, it's a, a bit of a train of thought, but one of the things I was thinking about is as a person with a disability with mobility issues, you, you won't have the sense of opportunity to, to get out and meet a diverse range of people. When you went to university, you probably did, as I did when I went to university. I finally met some people that I could get on with, but... <clears throat> Maybe that's the wrong way of looking at it. Recently, I went to Fiona Smith's funeral and Fiona's a famous um, disability advocate in Australia uh, for people who don't know her. And her partner spoke so beautifully about how disability, you know, people thought I was a hero, the partner who was partner to a person with disability, but she wasn't. She said, I wasn't. I had a great life. You know, one of the things that happened was, you know, when we traveled overseas, we, we got to do things I could never have done. And one of the big benefits was the parade of people that came through our house, the wonderful people that came to care for Fiona. And then mm. I, you know, it, it, whoa, you know, that can be pretty hard on you too, that parade of people. Where do you sit in terms of relationships and having so many transactional paid relationships that have the potential to become friendships? It's a very complicated question for me. Um, and 
my relationship with my support workers in that sort of transactional sense differs depending on the individual person. Um, but you're right in that relationships are something that I keep coming back to because it is the core of my life and my existence. Um, friendship in particular is a, a huge thing for me because I don't currently have a partner and I haven't had a partner for about 10 years or something like that. And so friendships become very important. And one of the things that I find, not just with my friendships with support workers, but also dealing with friendships in general, is that because I don't have the same sort of privacy that other people might because I do rely on people for, you know, every aspect of my personal care, is that I don't have the same sort of boundaries with sharing as a lot of other people might. And so I tend to get very invested in people very, very quickly. Um, and tend to sort of get maybe a little bit hurt when when that's not uh, reciprocated so much. So yeah, relationships have always been a sort of journey for me. So if one of the foundations of relationships is, is trust, is that what you're talking about? That you have to trust um, people with. Yes. So, and that's meant to be a gift, a gift of trust. It's not a gift you, you really have, is it? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's, you know, I think a lot of people with disability um, can have this sort of, can have different things that we're wrestling with in terms of how we relate to other people. And that's just my, one of the things that I have to um condemn with so that's all right i think it'd be a very um i think a lot of people will be able to associate with what you're talking about anyway it makes a lot yeah. of sense you fought us a little in a really positive way this we offer this this will <laughs> be a pause um, a proper one emily is there any work that you want to talk about that you've got coming up that you want to promote with listeners i am not currently working on my next play that I want to write. I took a bit of time off writing for theatre because of COVID, um, but I am sort of excited to get back into playwriting. I, I have a couple of ideas for works that I want to write that sort of touch on things that we've talked about today. So I guess just Stay tuned for my next projects. In the show notes, we'll make sure we link to your existing body of work, Emily, because it's really good and people shouldn't miss it. But in the meantime, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us, Emily. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
You've been listening to Disability Done Different Candid Conversations, a podcast by DSC that's produced by Maya Thomas. You can subscribe at teamdsc.com.au slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. That's the end. Bye. (laughs) Bye.